Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live... F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by Buckmore Park Karting, the heart of British karting and the new home of Missed Apex Karting. Join us on the 4th of August. Details later. We are an independent Formula One podcast that aims to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute and a wide array of F1 subject matter experts that cover every aspect of F1, from racing to politics, tech, news and business. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. I'm your host, Richard Spannersready, and I'm joined by Matt Two-Rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Um, you erased the name I gave the show, The Three Amigos. Well, that kind of leaves me out. Just because there's three people on this show called Matthew, you're going to call it The Three Amigos what? And their pet dog. Well, I wasn't going to go that far, but I was going to go with their pet spanner. But, you know, if you prefer dog, that's okay. Well, this is a bit bad, really, because this is our chance to show off on the internet. But this show today really isn't about us, is it? No, not at all. And it's pretty fantastic. And it, and And perhaps, dare we say it, inevitable. It's a clash of titans. But before we get going, I just want to say a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. We are powered by you. If you think what we do here is worthy of your support, go to patreon.com and search Missed Apex Podcast. The more support we get, the more we can do. We've proved it. Look how far we got. Imagine how far we can go. We are joined by assistant technical editor of motorsport.com, the tech man from Birmingham, Matthew Summerfield, hereby only referred to as Summers. Good evening, gentlemen. This could go rather disastrously, seeing as I've been up since 4am, but I hope you're both well. Well, I've got a data limit on this plan, so it can only go seven hours tonight, because you are joined today by a man so esteemed and terrifying that we do not give him a nickname. It's former Lotus F1 team boss, Matthew Carter. Hello, how are you all? Well, we're very good. So you're going head to head with a tech expert. How do you feel? A little bit scared. You shouldn't be nervous. It's me and Matt here who look like idiots. We've got two subject matter experts. This is going to be a fantastic show. Okay, so the first topic today is the scrutineering process. 
No, honestly, trust me, listeners, I wouldn't do you wrong. This is more interesting than it sounds. Summers, from a media point of view, what kind of view do you get to the scrutineering process? Obviously, when it comes to light that something has been outside of the rules, then we very much get to hear about it. How much of that process do you get to see from the inside? Do you ever know things that us punters don't see? From time to time, yeah, yeah, these sort of things are picked up. Um, And they're things that I don't always tend to get involved with straight away. We'll keep them close to our chest um, because they're things that have a process whereby they they sort of go on um, and produce things further down the line. So um, scrutineering is quite an important process, obviously, in terms of um, the legality side of things. But um, yeah, it, for me, it's something that um, we maybe pick up on later, um, a few races down the line, perhaps. Well, the FIA always produces a nice trove of what was done, but it, it seems to me that rarely, unless you already have a very vast technical knowledge of the sport, does it mean very much. Um, and I, I remember, I, I, I don't know how much attention you pay to their documents, but back when I was writing about them regularly, that sometimes there would be different software numbers on the ECUs that were being used by the teams. And that was always something that fascinated me is it seems like perhaps inherently that wasn't quite everybody on a level playing field. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it, it's not probably isn't the most exciting thing for most um, race fans to to listen and talk about. But from our point of view, I think you have to remember that the cars are completely dismantled and then reassembled at every single race. Um, so the, the, the guys, the mechanics put them together and then they have to go to scrutineering to make sure that they still obviously follow all the rules and regulations. Um, on top of that, you've obviously got the updates that are put onto the cars for the specific race and someone from the FIA has to make sure that all those updates uh, follow fall in line with the rules. And then you've got other teams taking pictures, looking at cars in the pit lane and assessing whether or not they believe that the updates do do match with, uh, with what they, they ought to do. So, um, yeah, it's probably not the most interesting, but it's quite an integral part of the whole, the whole race weekend. And from a legality point of view, obviously that means that um, that everybody has to try to fall in line. But obviously we know that there are these areas of nuance where teams do have sort of the, the process whereby they, they sort of skim along the, the grey areas. Matthew, we, we've talked about some of these areas that perhaps were apparent with Lotus whilst you were there. Is there anything that you could kind of shed more light on in that respect yeah i mean there was, there was uh, it, i think it's fairly well known that uh, the more successful teams are the ones that sail closest to the wind shall we say or sometimes sometimes go over the line um i think during my time uh, which was predominantly 2014 2015 and early 2016 uh, it was it was red bull for sure they were the ones that would constantly be pushing the uh, pushing the boundaries to see whether, what they could get away with at Lotus, we um, we tried very much to stick to the rules, but I remember there were there were a number of areas that we had spotted. Uh, how can I put it? Inconsistencies in the rules, or slight grey areas, or areas that could be pushed, um, and then you tend to get slapped back down by Charlie Whiting, and then you you fall back into line. Um, and I remember Nick Chester, who is the technical director at at Lotus and is now at, at Renault, would regularly write to Charlie if we found something. Certainly, if we found something that was a significant gain, you would almost think, well, is this going to be legal? So therefore, he would write a little note to Charlie to say, this is what we found. And I remember him doing that over our 
twin tusk nose for 2014, <laughs> which didn't work. But that was one that we we literally he he was in constant contact with Charlie for months beforehand to make sure that that was legal and that it was gonna it was gonna be sufficient for the scrutineers. But imagine if that had have worked. That would have been absolutely genius. It was quite telling that you've just said we did try uh, to keep within the rules. So is it kind of you do skirt towards the very edge of the technical regulation, try to gain an advantage? At what point would you say that you guys tried to stay within the rules where perhaps others wouldn't? Is it just the fact that you were open and honest about what you were doing and other teams weren't? Or is there a fundamental engineering approach? I, I don't think I said that other teams weren't. I said that they sailed close to it the wind. It was heavily <laughs> inferred, though, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I remember um, Red Bull with their flexible front wings. And I remember when they, when they did get uh, found out, shall we say, I remember Christian uh, coming to a strategy group meeting and saying that he was happy that they'd had it for the number of races that they'd had it for and that they'd got the gain from it. So therefore, it's worthwhile doing it. Oh, really? So it seems then that there's two types of teams. There's teams who believe the only line might be getting caught. And there's teams who are like, well, perhaps perhaps this looks a little bit wavy and we'll stick our toe beyond it. Is is that sort of how it seems like it pans out to you? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's... I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to know what Summers thinks, but I, I, for me, it's a risk and reward thing. I mean, it's um, so certainly for, for us at Lotus, we were midfield and we were sort of, we were bumbling around in midfield. We were certainly in 2015, we had a fairly hard fought battle with Force India. Um, and we were, we, were, we were kind of nip and tuck with them until sort of three quarters of the way through the season. Um, so I think it's risk and reward. So if you're at the front and you want to burn extra oil or you want to double blow your diffuser or I, I don't know, but there's, I, I would assume that if you're right at the front and you're battling week in, week out and there's big points to be made, then then you're more likely to take the risk. Yeah. And I'd also point out that perhaps it might come down to budgetary factors as well. So obviously the bigger teams can obviously try to chase those kind of gains. And for teams like perhaps Lotus that you were involved with that, becomes more difficult and that this is perhaps where some of the the big gaps are involved in terms of the um the way in which teams are spaced out on the grid in in purely because that you know you can't keep up with with their their gains as such yeah 100 percent. i mean we 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 couldn't chase after every uh point of downforce that we were trying to get because you know you there had to be again a, a period when you said, "Okay, we're going to get five points of downforce. Therefore, we'll 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 risk it through uh, the wind tunnel, and maybe onto the car at some point." So there was a couple of uh, fairly interesting ones that we had. There was one, um, there was one that was pushing the boundaries of legality, uh, and it was update which would um, effectively we had um, a cam on the driving uh, on the steering rack, which would make the front wing dip uh, into the corner. So the front wing isn't supposed to move, but the theory was, well, if the car's on the track and it's going around a corner, who's going to notice if the front wing, so if the front wing dips ever so slightly into the corner, then in theory, you get more downforce um, on that inner wheel, which gives you a little bit more traction. Um, we tried it, we developed it into the uh, simulator and it was very hard for the drivers to drive it because you almost had to counter steer backwards as you were coming out of the corner. So instead of just letting off the steering to, to drift out the corner, you actually had to steer out of the corner. So it was. It kind of played with the drivers' minds in the in the in the simulator. Yeah, I mean, it's that's not the first time I've heard of engineering concepts that have gone far down the line in terms of the way that, that the team approaches things, but then have been kind of poo pooed by drivers because they're difficult to to use. I mean, obviously, there's 
other scenarios where drivers have made massive gains in that respect, things like blown diffuser with Sebastian Vettel, for argument's sake. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely an area that a lot of people don't aren't aware of um, purely because these are things that are hidden behind closed doors as such. Um, there's been talk by Ross Braun um, as, of late of maybe having some more sort of openness in terms of having scrutineering open to the, the to the every other team as such. Do you think that's something that might be promising towards the midfield and the, the rear gunners um, on the grid or? Um, I, I, I mean, I have, a, I have a very personal view on the on the on the midfield front running battle. Um, I, I don't think it's going to make a hell of a lot of difference. And you know, I'm sure we'll get onto budget cuts and budget caps uh, later on. But um, I, for me, we were so Lotus. We could afford to develop it to the the stage that particular thing to the stage of um, the the simulator. If we were one of the big teams, we probably would have just said, you know what, we'll chuck two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand, and we'll get the thing built. We'll take it and chuck it on the car on a Friday and see whether it makes any difference in the real world. Whereas whereas we at Lotus couldn't do that. We had to prove it through the simulator. And as you say, Summers, we had, so at the time we had a guy called Marco Sorensen was our um, simulator driver. He now drives for Aston Martin, I think. Um, and he found literally around Barcelona, he found nearly a second benefit from this than, um, than he did without it, with and without it, back to back. But then when we put Roman in the car, he was worse with it on. So you have to, it's kind of risk and reward, as I say, and you have to go with what your drivers do. Now, was that because Marco wasn't as quick generally around the, the course and therefore, you know, there's, there's smaller margin or there's greater margins to be made because he wasn't at the, at the peak of his ability? You, you just don't know. So, yes, if we were a bigger team, maybe we would have thrown it at the car and would have seen what would have happened, maybe got away with it for a couple of races and, and then it would have been, uh, would have been ruled out. Um, but, yeah, I, I can see there's a difference, but... Um, I'm not sure that opening scrutineering is a way of, of closing the middle, the midfield to the front. We've actually got a chat room question, if you don't mind, first trumpets from, uh, let's see there, it's from Mark Greenhow, um, saying big teams can develop two streams side by side. I think we've talked about that quite a lot. Do you think any of them kind of develop a legal stream where they know for sure that will get through, but then they have a, a grey area stream so that they, they can sort of quickly ping back to uh, something they know is legal if they get caught out, if you like. A hundred percent. Yeah, of course. Because if you, if you go to a race with a slightly grey area front wing, let's say, and you haven't brought a traditional front wing that you raced in the, re- in the, previous, uh, the previous round and you know that that's okay, then if scrutineering say that front wing doesn't work, you have to fall back onto the one that does work. Um, it's, it, it then becomes, again, I'll, I'll say the words again, risk and reward. It then becomes about what, what's going to happen to you if you do fail scrutineering. I mean, I, I don't really know some as I think, do they get fined or do they, you don't, you can't get a grid penalty. I don't think, can you? No, no, it's not grid penalty. It would be a fine. Um, yeah. So it, it's probably, as you say, uh, when it comes down to the bigger teams, it's worth that risk because if it is just a fine, then they've got the money in, in, in pocket to to deal with that problem anyway. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's why they'll see it at the end of the day. Another interesting one that we actually that, that we we were trying to develop um, was the we obviously noticed there's a and again, some of us will know this. There's, there's, there's a there's a minimum or a maximum legal height that the T tray, the area at the front of the car, can be above the ground. And it's held on the the, the tray at the very very front of the car is held by a single a single piece of carbon fiber, and we worked out that if uh, with the t tray the lower the t tray is obviously the more downforce you're going to get from the front of the car, so we worked out that if we could build the piece that held the t tray on of a very very 
breakable material, shall we say, or a very thin material that we could, the first time that you hit a curb hard, then that would break and the TT would drop, the T tray would drop, and you'd get more downforce at the front of the car. And therefore, you could claim to the to the stewards or to the scrutineers, look, you know, it was an accident. This is, this is what happened. Um, and again, we could never quite make it work to the extent. So it was almost... I'm oversimplifying it because that's how my brain works, but it was kind of, so it would break, but then there'd be another piece that would catch it a little bit lower. So it wouldn't break and then be dragging on the floor. You would effectively just drop down that, that, that amount of, that was going to give you more downforce. But what happens um, in the next race? Yeah, it hap- I can't believe it. It happened again. The, this, the, but then, but, okay. But then the argument from, from me to my guys, and I don't know how other teams would approach it. The argument from me to my guys was, well, okay, but how are they ever going to, what, what, you know, when are they going to see that? Are they going to see that at the end of the race? Are they going to see it midway through the race? It's, you know, it, it comes to that, um, I say again, risk and reward. It, it depends how it's going to be seen. And if there's a safety car, the chances of Roman actually getting through that are, are greatly reduced anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> go on, Matt. Well, actually, I think Summers had something. Why don't you go first? Uh, well, my que- my uh, question there is about post-scrutineering because obviously not every car goes through that process either. Exactly. So that there has, has been scenarios where I believe that cars have been what you would term to be illegal, but they'll never be caught because, you know, only a, a small batch of cars are actually scrutineered at the end of the race. So, you you know, you're then playing against the odds. I, I, Am I going to be the car that he's scrutineered? So, you know, there is that, that grey area as well. Yeah, of course. It's the look of the draw. And it's probably not a great analogy, but it's almost like uh, drug testing in sport, I guess. You know, it's, it's, it's random. So it is, you know, some people will get away with it. Slightly different in Formula One, obviously, because it, it, it's, it's one race at a time. Um, but yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, and it's not every car that, um, as you say, that goes to scrutineering. So uh, again, you know, it's, it, it's probably easier for the bigger teams to play those, play those percentage games than it is for the smaller teams. Right. So, um, since I like to do this, I, I did a little, a tiny little digging on the internet, and I'm just curious as to whether we would rule this, there is no line but getting caught, or incredibly clever. Um, and I'd like to start with the perhaps well-forgotten Lotus Twin chassis. What do you think, Summers? Was that like just being clever under the rules, or were they just taking it to a whole new level? Well, that came about in in a period whereby um, the rules had already been pushed to a, a very definite limit, um, and obviously Lotus didn't want to give up that advantage that had already been gained for such a long period. So their double chassis was really a reinterpretation of the original idea. Um, so yeah, it was always bound to be put under scrutiny, um, but obviously, you know, with the especially with the original. Um, sort of um product band you know you're going to be in a situation where you you have to kind of um make it uh make it possible that uh, you're not caught again so yeah i i always saw that as as an as something that would have been uh problematic um and lotus really just pushing pushing the boundaries the okay. original lotus that is yeah 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 <laughs> I, I honestly think as well, I mean, just to go back to it, the, the way that it was kind of viewed within the team, certainly from the, I mean, you have to remember that even at Lotus as a mid, medium team, we had 250 aerodynamicists. So, you know, you've got all these guys there and they almost see the rules as a challenge. It's not like soccer where it's, you know, these are the rules. It's almost like, okay, these are the rules. How do we find a way that no other team has spotted of of getting something through scrutineering, if you like, or just get something onto the race car that's going to abide by 
the rules to the letter of the rules, but then, and that's why the rules have gone from being this thick to, to this thick. Now, I'm wondering, because the example you just used there of soccer, it's an interesting analogy because a British team might think that it's a, a foul or might think that it's cheating to dive when you know you haven't been touched. But for example, to just pick a nation at random, the Italian footballers see it as very much part of the game to trick the referee. And if they can get a penalty, they are applauded by the Tifosi, I mean, by the Italian football fans. So do you see a difference in philosophy between teams? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I, I can't comment because I've never worked within other teams. Well, I, I have, but um, I, for me and for, for the guys at Lotus, it was, it was, it, it's a challenge. It's a, you know, and, and every time I went to the strategy group meeting, you would sit around a table and that was exactly what they would say is, you know, that the, the rules are written. So the exhaust has to exit between this point and this point. So obviously the first thing that everyone does is try the exhaust on every point that they can. Um, or like the, 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 the shark fins from last year and the, um, I don't even know what you called the little T wings that were on the back of the shark fin was because there was an area where they'd left. They do like a drawing of the car and there's an area that was left blank. So, so therefore we can, we can stick something there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the challenge, isn't it? And it's the first thing I, I do myself whenever I see a new set of regulations is I then draw out the, the, the possibilities, you know? So at the end of the day, when you have 250 aerodynamicists that are focused on on producing a car then that's 250 people viewing those regulations differently um my single approach to to how i would do something may be very different to how somebody else does and that's the fascinating part about the the engineering aspect of formula one for me um and, and you know the the reason why i watch formula one let's say and and going off topic ever so slightly, which I know I'm prone to do. That is a reason why I think that what Haas are doing and when people talk about customer cars or when people talk about, um, you know, trying to level the playing field in terms of um, constructors championship, drivers championship, I don't believe it's the way to go because I think it is a technology based and driven sport. And the minute you start saying you can have what, the, my time at strategy group they were called customer cars but would effectively be okay a team can start we could start a missed apex f1 team next year can and we? we're allowed to go <laughs> we're allowed to go and buy last year's mercedes car um you know we can we can buy the car that won the, the, the championship last year and we can put up a fairly good show of things whereas you've got sauber or williams or mclaren who are trying to do it in my eyes the right way as in they're trying to make the, they're trying to build a car from scratch um they're a pro, it's a prototype car every every f1 car is and i believe that is why it's a technology sport and why it should always remain that way um and what Haas are doing at the moment i think is pushing that to when we talk about pushing things to the boundaries i think what they're doing is pushing it to the boundaries okay so for people who aren't as technically technically minded as our usual listeners i.e me when you say the way Haas are doing things i mean can you clarify that a little bit more because they surprised us in Australia. And I think the general accusation was that this is basically last year's Ferrari. But Gunter Steiner said, absolutely not. This is preposterous, you know. Um, so there seemed to be some conflict. Certainly no one has come out and said, yes, we've just used all Ferrari parts. Is that the suspicion from, from you and from within no, the no, industry? No, no, not at all. Not at all. And I, and I think Matt or Summers, one of those two, can definitely talk about listed parts better than me. Well, I'll talk about Haas in general. 
the, the th- I actually wrote a, a piece about this as usual. There you go for the the bingos out there that are, that are playing bingo. I'll tell you what, um, well, why don't you just plug your site if you're going to do that, so people know where to find it. Well, I'm I'm actually using Patreon again, like you guys at the moment. So there's there's more content going on my Patreon page, um, which is obviously patreon.com forward slash summers F1. Um, but I have got summersf1.co.uk, and obviously motorsport.com is where most of my work goes these days. Um, however, going back to the Haas scenario, um, the, this year's Haas is not last year's Ferrari. Yes, it has a basis in the way it is constructed, because if you were Haas as a constructor, why would you not take the best car of last year and copy their ideas? Um, especially when you share their power unit, their gearbox, their rear suspension, their front suspension, brake ducts, brakes, everything that, you know, the mechanical elements of that car are, are identical to the Ferrari. But what we have to remember is, is that this year's Ferrari and the Haas are longer wheelbase cars. So you have to alter the aerodynamics to suit that that particular setup. So to say that they're one and the same car is completely incorrect. Um, they're very similar in their philosophy. I'm not saying that that's not true, but to say that they're a carbon copy was really just hogwash for me. So, so Matt, just explain listed parts for the people that maybe don't understand. Uh, listed parts are, are the parts that the team has to construct, um, not necessarily construct on their own, but has to design on their own. They have to be their own original intellectual property. And um, as, as I recall the regulation, uh, even to the point where, say, uh, uh, a firm like Delara, which makes the chassis for Haas, can only now work for Haas. You couldn't go to Delara and get your own Formula One chassis that your even third party um, uh, suppliers are required to have an independent and exclusive relationship with the team. And there was a big change uh, around about 2015, I think it was. Um, and I believe absolutely at the urging of, um, of, of Bernie that some of the more fiddly and expensive parts that had previously been listed suddenly stopped showing up. And in particular, I'm thinking about a lot of the arrow bits around the brakes. Is that correct to your remembrance, Summers? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So yeah, yeah so, I, so I sat on the strategy group when they talked about that. And b- bizarrely or not, the smaller teams wanted to keep more listed parts. Because it was a, it was a, it was seen as if you open up the listed parts, then, and I appreciate what someone's just said about Haas, but you you end up going down that route of it's easier just to go and buy everything off the shelf than it is to go and design it um, and to and to be to try and push the boundaries of of what you can achieve um, yourself. So the 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 smaller teams didn't want those listed parts uh, reduced. The bigger teams didn't really care. They, they it was of no interest to them whatsoever. Um, and the the thought from Bernie was that uh, certainly sat around the strategy group was that they were he was losing teams on a fairly regular basis. Um, and so therefore, if he could reduce the listed parts, and therefore someone could just walk in and say, okay, I'm going to buy last year's Ferrari or last year's Mercedes or. Um, whatever it was, then, then they, could, they could walk in and do that and then they would have a ready-made car fit to go. I think the issue that a lot of the people in Formula One and certainly the paddock had with Haas, um, and again, this is maybe talking out of line a little bit, was when Haas first came in, their Ferrari, so the, the, the amount of wind tunnel time and the amount of simulation time and the amount of CFD that you're allowed to use is limited by the FIA. And when Haas first came in, it was pretty much 
I'm going to say known up and down the paddock that Ferrari, so the Ferrari, so Ferrari's wind tunnel is being used by Haas. And from what I understand, the Haas engineers would basically walk in. Um, sorry, the Ferrari engineers would do their time in the wind tunnel, walk out, put Haas overall on and go back in and then continue to work on the Ferrari car. Yeah, in fact, there was a massive, and this is funny because I went to look for it in the regulations. It's not in the regulations. There was a massive, massive decision uh, after Abu Dhabi that dealt entirely with not all with the movement of personnel between teams, as well as limiting, as, as basically writing that loophole out of the regulations from that point forward. New teams coming in were limited as soon as they signed an agreement to participate not when they actually first showed up on the grid, which is what it had previously been. So a, a couple of smaller things. And again, I know we're going, we're going off topic and I apologize. But so I went to the Haas factory in Banbury and there is literally nothing there. So it was the old manor factory and it was, it was literally, it's like, um, it's like a showroom at the front. And then behind it, there's nothing there. The cars don't go back there after the races. They go to Dallara. Uh, well, half of it goes to Dallara, half of it goes back to Ferrari. So at the end of every race weekend, most teams ship the cars back home. Or so, so Lotus, for example, would come back to Enstone. The mechanics would all fly back. The car would get dismantled. Everything would get serviced and new parts would get put on. And then it could fly out to the next race. The Haas car doesn't go anywhere near Banbury. Parts of it go back to Dallara and parts of it go back to Ferrari, to Maranello. And that's where it's that's where it's looked at, and then it's flown out from there. So that's one thing. The second thing that I will quickly say is when, and I've alluded to this before on the podcast. We at one point we looked to buy Caterham when they were going into administration, and the listed parts was obviously really really key to what we were trying to do. So the idea was that we were going to move at the time. I'd laid off a hundred people from Lotus when I first went there, so we had a fair amount of spare desk space, if you like. The idea was that we could move the people from Caterham that worked on the non-listed parts into Enstone and they could all work together. And then we needed to rent somewhere separate so that the listed parts weren't seen to have come from the same place so that you had to have a separate design area for the listed parts. And that was the concept that we were trying to put together for Caterham. I'll throw that out there and see what comes back. Okay. I'll hit you up straight away. Um, while I believe you were still in the sport, um, I want to say it might have been Force India, but it was back when, again, the budget things were coming to a head, had made a suggestion to have what amounts to a midfield technology center to yeah. rival the ones that the big teams had. And it would be a way of allowing teams to still independently design, but also concentrate resources for the purposes of saving budget. And also, quite frankly, I think personnel as well, which is what, if we get into budget caps, I'm certain will be something that comes up. How do, what did you think of that? Is, is, do you think it's possible to have a workable solution along those lines? It's, it's possible, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I have very strange thoughts on all of this because my, period, my time when I was there, it was so much engine-related, the formula. The, the, the race series, sorry, was so much engine related. 2014 onwards, it was all about the engine. And if you had a Renault engine, there was no chance. If you had a Renault engine and you had, well, if you were Red Bull, okay? So you've got a Renault engine. You've got as much money as you need to spend. You've got as much uh, personnel. You've got the best drivers. You're still going to finish pretty much nowhere. Um, so in my period of, of, of running the team, it was all about engines. So therefore, this whole technology, this whole... Um, idea that the smaller teams could group together just didn't really seem to fit very well because uh, it, it was, if you had a Mercedes engine, you were Williams and you were going to do well. And then as the 
regulations kind of get more mature, then the engines come together and then Williams start to fall back. And that's just kind of natural selection. Matt, trumpets. I haven't said anything for a while. So I'm going to fall on the chat room to allow me to get into this conversation a, a little bit. Evangelos Etakaralikos says, you missed the title. The three Matsketeers should have been what you should have gone for trumpets. How did you miss that? Uh, easy. I was busy looking for um, uh, seat weight driver regulations in previous years. Which we will definitely get to. Matt Naylor has a question for Summers F1. Has any team nicked any of your ideas over the years, Summers? Come on, <laughs> be honest. Call them out. Perhaps any former team bosses who aren't in the paddock anymore so you can you can call them out on it. Has Matthew Carter stolen your tech ideas? Has it happened? No. He's the, <laughs> he's the simple answer. I have had situations where I've written things and then there's been subsequent technical directives that have come out that have disproved or approved things that I've mentioned in the past. The, the Probably the biggest example of that is um, Lotus actually ran for a significant amount of time, I think it was in 2013, um, drag reduction device that blew the rear wing. It was a sort of passive device that stalled the rear wing at, at high speed. Um, but they only ever raced it once on Kimmy's car at Silverstone in 2013. I don't know how much budget went into that thing. I mean, obviously, Matthew might be able to put us right on that scenario. Um, It forced some of the other teams to also put budget into it. Mercedes and Sauber also copied the idea, and they started to test it as well. So perhaps it was one of those Trojan horse-style things where let's try and get the others to see if this works. Um, but then I proposed the following season for 2014 that the wastegate controls be used as a semi-active device to, to, to store that device. And I got in touch with Paddy Lowe because obviously he, he um, gets hold of these technical directives, etc. And he got hold of the technical directive and Ferrari had already asked about this specific device that I'd mentioned. So it was ruled out on the basis of... <laughs> um, a technical directive, but I'd come up with the idea. Obviously, other Formula One engineers had come up with the idea, and it was just a, a clever aside, I think, that um, it was something that I'd kind of come up with, really. I tell you what, I do want you to come up for. And that's a bit of go karting, Summers. We are delighted to announce the third Missed Apex karting event. Actually, the fifth one we've put together, but the third under the successful guise of Missed Apex podcast. Join us at Buckmore Park on the 4th of August from 1.30pm for an unforgettable afternoon of kart racing action. We are excited to be hosted by Buckmore Park Karting. This is a world-famous circuit and the scene of countless battles between up-and-coming F1 drivers over the years. The track features elevation changes and plenty of overtaking places, uh, not in the wet that I was trying to do it in yesterday. I was absolutely useless. Boasts the most powerful four-stroke carts in the UK. Now, I very much struggled with those in the wet conditions yesterday. I'm very much looking forward to doing them in the dry. It's a fantastic track. You will absolutely love the driving experience. The panel is going to be well represented. I'm going to be there. Chris Rainbow Sparkle Stevens, Karting Masterclass co-host Bradley Philpott will be there. And there are even efforts underway to fly over Matt Trumpets to make this an intercontinental event. This event will cater to all experience levels. Don't worry if you're rubbish. I have two friends, Ash McCallum and uh, Flat Squid, Simon Hughes, who will be four laps behind you guaranteed. 
you'll race in three 16-car heats and end up with a final with people of similar ability. So points will be awarded all the way down the grid. There'll always be a reason to fight for the place, even if you're in last. Race as an individual or come as a four-man team and put points on the board for your team throughout the, the, the session. There will be a team trophy and an individual trophy. Now, we'll be looking to book groups together. So if you book four people to come, we'll put you in as a team. If you want to be in a team and you're on your own, just email me and say, stick me in the, in a team as well, and we'll do that. Email me now to book spannersready at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter at MrApexF1 or Spanners Ready. There are only 48 spaces. We were massively oversubscribed last time, so I urge you to book quickly, because not only is Missed Apex Podcast there, we have also invited every other F1 podcast that hasn't had a massive Twitter meltdown at us uh, to come with us as well. So for F1 sake, guys are going to come down, I think. We've invited Norfolk F1, you know, the pub drunks. Um, three legs, four wheels from the Isle of Man are interested in come along, coming along. We've even cheekily invited Checkered Flag. So we'll see if they can come along or if Jack Nichols comes up with a legitimate excuse. Matt Trumpets, are you going to be there? Um, working on it. I entirely possibly might be. Basically, what does your wife say? Uh, wife is all for it. In fact, she has already found a million and one things, um, a million and one things that she would be doing if she was in Kent. Ooh, There's so appar- it- apparently a million structures that I'm going to have to go and film and FaceTime for her and the child. It's a very beautiful county. Summers, you're going to come up with a team from the Isle of Wight, aren't you? I will certainly have a team. We're not going to come up from the Isle of Wight, though, are we? Because it'll be my brother and a few friends. So it'll be from the old neck of the woods. Fair enough. And uh, any chance we can lure you from Canada Air? Possibly. Possibly. Oh, that would be exciting. What are you like in a cart generally, Mr. Carter? Uh, not very good. Too big. Well, you're too That's big. Are you, a, are you a tall man, would you say? Uh, six, one, so ish. So that's interesting. So do Not you huge. think do you think it's unfair that drivers are penalized for being large human beings? In fact, let's go to Summers first to summarize the problems and the issues around bigger drivers because especially when the hybrid era started, there was big shots of Nico Rosberg sitting there, you know, gently eating a small bowl of fruit. Uh, during a red flag to make sure they minimize the driver weights. Lewis Hamilton's always complained he can't do any muscle building because he needs to stay lean. Uh, give us a bit of a background on this, Summers. Well, the, the biggest problem is obviously that the, the cars have got m- much heavier over the years. So we're currently at 734 kilograms, which is astonishing weight for a single seater in reality. Now, obviously, in the last year, we've had to face the um, halo going on board as well. So that's obviously made things more difficult once again and then with the halo that brought up the topic once more of drivers who suffer because of the weight issue um so for 2019 they're actually going to resolve that problem by um effectively having a separate weight for the driver and the seat combined which will be 80 kilograms meaning that the seat will be ballast for that ballasted for those that are beneath that that particular weight so yeah, during during my time, it was a big issue, and I and I honestly, my point of view is that it's not fair that they are penalised um, because, as you as you say, I watched. So at the time, it was a Roman and Pasto, um, and they were um, constantly battling their weight because uh, obviously, you know, every kilo that you're over is somewhere you can't put some ballast in the car. And I remember in 2014 in Bahrain, just before Bahrain, um, John McVern had uh, I think he collapsed. 
I'm not sure if it was made public at the time. It was either just before or, or just after a, a training session, and he collapsed. And it was because he was he was basically malnourished because he was trying to he was trying to cut weight so much. Um, so that clearly is not, and that's because John Eric is quite a tall guy. Um, so to penalise people for them being slightly tall, I mean, that, I, I don't think that should affect their ability to drive a race car. Um, I had it with Jolian as our test driver. He was he was quite tall. Um, so the smaller guys tend to, I mean, if you see these guys, I mean, if you see Lewis, it's, it's difficult to, to judge them on TV, but if you, when you, when you see them, they're like, they're like jockeys. They're, they're very small guys. And for people of that size to still be worrying about their weight and constantly concerned about it, I don't think is a, is, is a, is a natural thing. So, um, there's more danger to trying to keep that weight down than simply being malnourished because one of the biggest aspects of your weight is water. Now, when we returned after Christmas, our football coach at work decided some of the older players had enjoyed Christmas a little bit too much. Since then, we've been weighed every Friday to make sure we're keeping our weight down. So what I tend to do is I obviously starve myself on Wednesday. And when it gets to Thursday, I just don't want to drink any water. So I sit there going, I can't even rehydrate myself. And then if I want to lose even more weight, that vital pound and a half before the weigh-in, you go out for a a 5k jog. So you're physically exhausted. You've pushed yourself to the limit. You're deliberately dehydrating yourself as well as the dieting. That isn't what a sportsman should be doing. In boxing, you can do that weigh-in and then quickly rehydrate and eat before the fight. Of course, for a driver, he's got to carry that weight actually into the sport. But um, my main... uh, point of concern with you Matthew Carter you're a tall person I am more I don't know what you how would you I'm more Napoleonic in my stature and nobody gives me a stool to play basketball Bernie-esque so nobody gives me a stool to play basketball why should tall drivers get an advantage um or lose a disadvantage in in motorsport like why why are we why are we compensating for tall drivers at all oh okay so it's but you're talking about more, okay, I want to say more physical, and I appreciate that's probably going to get a backlash, but it, you're talking about a more physical sport, a more um, where your physique is more important, whereas driving is, is more about your, your brain, your reflexes, your feel, your nerve, your, I nearly said a word that I can't say on a family uh, podcast. Thank you. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's more about you as a, as a person and about your brain and about your, your ability. Uh, and I don't think that the fact that you're, six foot or five foot four should really should really make a difference that's it's my personal opinion i think it was i think was it not schumacher that changed the way that drivers went about racing and that they were prior to he was the one that really started to 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 work out and to and to realize that uh, if if they stayed fit then they were they were going to be better on the track yeah he kind of bought a new era to, to formula one in terms of the fitness level of of, of uh, becoming athletes effective effectively um schumacher really broke the mold in that respect and um yeah he, he changed the landscape of the sport in reality okay so the drivers the yeah. drivers each driver has a physio and and i mean even so at lotus our mechanics they were given um a, a training regime so all the mechanics and certainly the ones that If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At the pit stops, they had a training regime. They had to go to the gym X amount of times a week. They had to hit a certain weight. They had to be their reflexes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's, I mean, that's the detail that F1 teams go to. So not just the driver; it's the whole, the whole, the people that come into contact with the car during a race all have to be fit. So does that mean that you had to on the pit wall as well, Matthew? No, <laughs> just just voice voice work. That was it. I, I I do tend to view these guys as athletes, so definitely send your emails to matthewcarter at gmail.com, presumably, uh, and not to me. I, I certainly, yes, think that post-Michael Schumacher, it's been a massive disadvantage to not be fit. The truth of the matter is we've got more and more people than ever wanting to be motorsport drivers. Therefore, the competition has has risen and you need that extra sporting competitive edge. Uh, but of course, you know, they're not powerlifting. They're not trying to, to jump over uh, uh, hurdles. Uh, Matt Chompitz, though, uh, something that we must address because it has just come out today. And how often do we get to be topical? They have announced some rules that will tackle the age-old problem of overtaking in F1. Frankly, I can't really remember this glorious time that everybody thinks uh, that F1 was much, much better when there was loads of overtaking. I remember growing up watching processions where you could pretty much tell the result in the first lap. These days, we all panic about overtaking and they've introduced some rules for next season, which is uncharacteristically decisive action to help improve the overtaking. Yeah, and it was interesting because you knew uh, Ross Braun having developed it, that the FIA and FOM would be on board. But if the teams had all said no, I don't believe there were enough votes to have forced it through. But uh, I'm understanding that at least Mercedes 
was okay with this. And in the end, I think it probably came down to the following calculus that they are talking already about budget caps uh, going forward from the 2021 season. And if you're going to have to develop new things, you'd much rather develop them before there are any budget caps in place. So this is the way the wind is blowing. Better to have unlimited funds to spend now than limited funds later on. And in particular, they're making um, changes to the front wing. I believe they're getting rid of the cascades altogether and they're making it wider. And the same is true for the rear wing. They're making it uh, a little bit deeper and a little bit um, either wider or longer. I'm sure Summers has the absolute I's and T's on that one for us, though. Yeah, okay. So so basically, the, the front wing is going to be wider. There's no actual... I haven't got the dimensions, but I would imagine that they're going to go across to sort of 1,900 millimetres, 100 millimetres short of the, the overall width of the car. Um, they're taking away the cascades, as you mentioned, and there's talk of simplifying the end plate. Um, so what they're trying to do is to stop the outwash effect, which is primarily what is, is, is the problem of the current generation of wings. There's multiple vortices that are generated at the outer edge of the wing to try to push the, the airflow across the front edge of the fa- face of the tyre and out around it and manipulate the wake that is generated by the tyre itself. So what they want to do is remove all those elements to try to improve the way in which the, wor- the wing works when it's following another car, which all sounds really lovely. Um, but I'm still not convinced that it's going to work because there are always unintended consequences of these type of rule changes. For argument's sake, back in 2009, when the original um, central section of the wing was bought in, it brought forward the Y250 vortex, which Spanners always goes on about. It's the Y2K um, so, vortex. And it's also, yes. it's vortexes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you always get these sort of unintended consequences of, of, of larger rule changes. So although... You know, you have to make changes uh, in this respect. I do think that perhaps there might be some complications in terms of how this might um, come across from the varying budgets of each team. Obviously, you've got to remember that the likes of Ferrari and Mercedes have got money to throw at this sort of thing willy-nilly. Um, and my biggest issue is the fact that the front wing has actually become less of an impact. The front wings used to be decorated each and every race with updates, whereas in the last two years, or certainly 2017 and, and the start of this year, the updates have, have been less frequent because there's more low-hanging fruit elsewhere on the car. So, you know, the, there's not so much development on the front wing. Um, there's also another couple of areas where... Um, changes will be made so the front brake ducts have been simplified there'll be no winglets etc um and yeah you know all of these things are just creating drag so it kind of nullifies the problem of the fuel that's been increased right well um i believe it was a low cell said what could possibly be a problem with overtaking when we line up cars from fastest to slowest on the grid which fair enough Uh, But I had generally thought, and you could just give me a quick yes or no on this, that the point of changing the front wings was reduce the sensitivity of the trailing car rather than um, rather than on the leading car to make it to make it a bit easier on that. Uh, Yeah, basically, that's the idea, Matt. So basically, whilst you're trailing a car, you don't want your front wing becoming ineffective. But obviously, you're taking performance from the lead car as well. So it's a domino effect. It is. And um, 
it won't do anything to address the cooling problems that go along with trailing that closely that we have because we have the complicated battery systems on board. No, again, and also, like I just mentioned, the problem that has come up recently is that we're using too much fuel. So there's an extra five kilograms for 2019 to take it to 110 kilogram race fuel, or that's how much you can fuel to, um, which kind of defeats the point if you're going to add drag to the car. So that was brought in to stop the lifting and coasting happening. And yet we've now added drag to the car. So the lifting and coasting is still going to happen. I'm devastatingly confused. Can you just bring this back a tiny bit for me? Just tell me if I've got this right. The the changes to the front wing are so that they are less affected by the car in front. I thought that we were changing the front wing to stop what was being kicked out the back for the car behind. But then with this rear wing, with a bit of a scoopy shovely thing, is it too simplistic that I'm thinking it means that the air will then hit the back wing and go higher and further up and over to allow the leading car to sort of get in the little tunnel of wind without dirty air. Is that stupid? If And if it is, tell me why. You're talking about slipstreaming, basically, Espanus. This, this is essentially what you're talking about. Of course about. I you, am. You want, I avoid, that. you want a void of air behind the car so that you can slipstream another car. Well, yes and no. The, the, the way that they're designing these new front wings will have an impact on both the lead car and the trailing car because the lead car now doesn't have as, as much rear downforce because it can't improve the wake of the front tire wake so it, it, it it's a difficult one i don't see how this is going to improve things dramatically is my simple analysis or snap analysis shall we say it is a bit challenging and uh, to 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 speak further to spanner's confusion yes you are right there there will be low pressure behind the front car but what will be supposedly improved is the turbulent air which ought to make attaching the air that is there a little bit easier for the trailing car, meaning you need less of a delta to get by. Um, now, one of the things, one of the reasons we might have some faith in this solution, believe that Ross Braun and his team of geniuses has been running not one, but two cars in a wind tunnel, possibly even nose to tail to sort it out. And those cars come to us from the former team Manor. I believe that uh, Matt Trumpets is trying to ask you, Matthew Carter, how... (laughs) Basically, the long and the short of it is, we've been dying to talk to you in about three shows that you've been on here. We've We've talked about your time, obviously, with Lotus as it merged into Renault, but then... Less well-known is that you tried to make something of Mana, and I've been desperate to ask you about that because, obviously, Mana shut down. Were you there when Mana actually ended up closing the gates? No. So I, uh, the start of 2016 season, I was approached by Stephen Fitzpatrick, the guy that owned Manor, uh, and he wanted me to go there and to help him run the team or to run the team. Um, so I went there. I was there for approximately two months before I realized that it was um, clearly not going to last much longer. Um, and it didn't. And I was I was actually surprised they made it to the end of that season because uh, it wasn't particularly well funded. They were struggling with lots and lots of different uh, areas. Uh, and it was potentially 
they could have done uh, a Hask type, a Hass type operation. Really, um, they had the Mercedes engine, they had the Williams gearbox, they had the Williams rear suspension. They had the elements that, that they could have made something quite good of that car for that season. But um, I think without a significant investment and without um, some changes to the to the team, it was never gonna it was never gonna survive. Um, and unfortunately, that was what happened. So yeah, so I basically spent approximately two months as the as the CEO. We never announced it. It never got sort of released to the press. I left, and then my former COO, a guy called Thomas Mayer, who was at Lotus, he went in there as CEO and um, was really sort of uh, given a bit of a um, a burning bush. If you, I don't know what the phrase is, but yeah, he was he was handed something that was never going to work. Um, but I, my genuine thoughts are that, that that it could have worked. The the Manor project could have worked. They were they were trying to engineer a bit more stuff than some some of the some of the teams like Has do. Um, they had the potential to make it work. I think they were just lacking a little bit. Well, they were definitely lacking a little bit in funding um, and sponsors. And um, there's a lot of other legal bits and pieces going on that that that, that caused them problems as well. I mean, there was. Have several beers and then talk without limits. Um, But (laughs) I'm I'm wondering, though, because like you said, it was a bit of a hospital pass that uh, the the, the next person got. Has Has that put you off? Like, is there any scenario you could see that somebody said, "Okay, we've got a low budget team, Matthew Kyle, we know what he can do. Uh, we know that he's been articulate and brilliant on Missed Apex podcast. Uh, is there anything that comes could up, actually... comes up regularly. I bet it does. I bet it does. Uh, please bring along the, the handsome host of that. Um, is there, have you been put off for life? Is, is there a scenario where you think you go, do you know what? That's a, that, I could go in and fix that. It's, it's an interesting question. I, I've not been put off for life, but there are only uh, 10, 11 teams on the grid and there's only 10, 11 positions running those teams. So, and most of them are fairly settled and sorted. So, um, you know, I don't think Toto is going to go anywhere or Christian or, uh, or even Bene, I would not do that job. Um, the rest of them, if you go downwards from there, um, I... I'm not sure. It's it's each each and every team is its own unique entity. I mean, I've I spent a fair bit of time talking and listening to Haas and Sauber uh, towards the back end of last year. Uh, those two teams are, are interesting, but I don't think there's it's it's a specific thing. If I was involved, then we would have to we would, the the budget would have to be settled and organised. And to be honest, I didn't really care whether the budget was tiny or the budget was was a little bit bigger because you kind of you judge it and you you cut your cloth accordingly. Um, the problem at Manor was that there wasn't enough cloth to cut. So therefore it was almost impossible to cut it accordingly because it just simply wasn't there. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was, it was almost a, a no brainer that it was, that it was unfortunately going to fail. Um, they, uh, they set their sights on gaining. I mean, and again, and, and, and Summers and Matt and, and you to a, to a certain extent, I think we'll, we'll probably understand this, that, that those top 10 teams, the, the the fact that the money is only split between the top 10 teams, the 11th team for that season of 2016 was always going to be the one that really, really suffered because the, it's only the, t- and, I, and I'm not sure if people really know this, but so it's only the top 10 teams that get a cut of the, uh, the TV, re- I think it's the TV revenue or it's the commercial rights. One, one of the two pots is only split 10 ways. So if you're the 11th team, you're literally, there's probably $33 million that you don't get so that one point that Sauber got that knocked 
mana into 11th cost them basically the 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 ability to continue to to operate matthew trumpets now on the panel when you bring up strategy group i normally go to sleep but i think you probably do have the right people to bring that topic up on um well and i think you know when we get down to it we have seen a lot of changes from liberty we've got a new program post-show program coming out on twitter we've had a lot of change with the graphics and with the logo and it seems that, at least on that front, after an initial discomfort over the fact that the favorite thing was possibly changing, that there's been a, a lot of fairly good press. And they've been, um, I hate to use the word blessed, but they've been blessed with uh, four very good races, or at least three and a half very good races thus far, to sort of help things along. But with this change um, to aid overtaking, we're beginning to see them put their thumb on the scale of the of the sporting regulations, the technical regulations as well. And so I think it's time to get your opinion about how that's going to go. And I, I think Summers had some specific questions for you. Um, so, yeah, basically, we've got 10 teams on the grid and four engine suppliers. Um, from my point of view, having another engine supplier put in the mix as has been touted by the likes of Aston Martin, et cetera, is not economically viable. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Matthew? Because I'm just bewildered by the whole scenario of adding extra power unit manufacturers for 2021. Um, I think if, so, if, if someone wants to join the party of F1, and, and don't get me wrong, the, the, the engine manufacturers earn very, they, they do very, very well from their association with Formula One. So the Mercedes, Renault, even the, even Honda, you know, their association with Formula One does, does, does them well as a business. Um, and I think other engine manufacturers would probably be interested in coming in. The problem is, as Honda are finding out, is the amount of money you have to spend to get up to speed. Um, and I think the, the shots that were shown of um, of the Honda engine with uh, coming into contact with Magnussen, uh, I, I think that shows that Honda are getting there. Um, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing to, to open it up. And unfortunately, I think if you do open it up, the teams that come in are going to be are going to be lagging a, a fairly long way behind. Um, certainly for the first few seasons, um, unless they unless they keep the same engine regulations static for let's say another five years, and somebody comes in. Um, I don't think it would be Aston Martin because I honestly don't think they've got the budget to do it. Um, but if a Porsche or, or somebody like that decided to come in, then um, then I think as, as long as the engine regulation stayed static for long enough, then they, they, could, make a, they could make a play. Um, and I think, honestly, my honest opinion is the more the merrier. Um, I think it, the fact that Mercedes are so dominant is, is not necessarily exciting for the sport. Um, and, the, and the more that Ferrari and, and Renault, to a lesser extent, catch up, then it makes it more interesting. Um, I think that the, the, the question about the strategy group, which I think was, was, was what you were coming to, um, is interesting. So the, the changes that have been made have come through the strategy group. And there's a whole, there's a whole debate about the governance of, of, of F1 and, and the strategy group in itself and the way it came about. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about it if, if, if people think that it's something they want to talk about. So the strategy group itself is, is, is fairly interesting. And again, I don't know how many people know this, but so there's 10 teams on the grid, but there's only six teams that sit in the strategy group. I know it was changed when Liberty came in so that the other four could sit and listen, but not speak. 
but I mean, effectively, that's that's bonkers in itself. So the the way it was set up when I sat on the strategy group was uh, it was the it was basically the top four teams. Sorry, it was the top five teams plus Williams. And I don't really know why Williams got included in it, but Williams were included in it. So we, as Lotus, had finished, I think, fourth in 2013. So therefore, we sat on the strategy group. And the strategy group, so it had one person from each of the top six teams. It had Bernie. It had uh, the FIA represented by Jean Todd. And it had Charlie Whiting, a group of lawyers sitting around a big table in either uh, Biggin Hill or in Geneva or in Paris or sometimes at the circuits or wherever it would be. And basically, it was like... If you ever watch the House of Commons when they're doing Prime Minister's Question Time and you think, Jesus, that is crazy. What on earth are these grown men doing, shouting and screaming and banging on the table? The strategy group is like that times 10. It's just the most idiotic, bonkers, bizarre group of people all pulling in separate directions, all pulling in separate directions, trying to decide on rules and regulations for Formula One and I, how anything comes out of it. The, qualifi- the, the change to the qualification rules, that came out of it. Um, the, I sat in one strategy group where Bernie threw up the idea, and this was debated for about four hours of having a joker lap whereby you could cut a corner. And it was literally debated for about four hours. And I sat there thinking, what on earth is going on? This is They talked about reverse starting grids. Everything that you can possibly imagine has been fielded, has been discussed, and at some point, you think, actually, that could be sensible, but then it needs a unanimous vote. So Bernie's got six votes, the FIA have six votes, and the teams have one vote each. So basically, it then becomes, no matter what crops up, whether it be, let's give Bernie a million gazillion pound raise, it's voted for by people. So whoever's got an agenda, then come, it, it, it then becomes part of that agenda. You then throw into that mix, and I'll shut up in a minute, you then throw into that mix the facts that when we when we took the Mercedes engine, I would get Toto ringing me and saying, there's a vote in the strategy group this week, this is the way you're going to vote. So, oh. for example, one of those was the titanium, the skid plates that cause all the nice sparks, and that was because Red Bull's car was running at a certain rake and that Mercedes wanted to stop Red Bull from running their car at that rake, and it was a way of them doing it, so we voted against it. Wait, wait, wait. Say all that again, except Toto Wolf calls you up and tells you to vote a certain way uh, because why? Because he has power over you because you have his engine or because that is the agreement that is in place when you take the engine or because have you have you you seen the guy? Uh, He's a big fella. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. No, it's it's because it's kind of no. So he's not he's not telling me I have to do it. It's not, and, and, it, it, and it's never that black and white. In Formula One and in lots of business, it's never that black and white. It's a, this would be a good thing. This is what the Mercedes teams are going to do. This is how we feel that you should go along with it. And there was one vote, and I can't remember what it was for. There was one vote, and believe it or not, in 2015, they were still fax votes. So you would get, <laughs> fax would come through. You, a, a facsimile. I mean, there's there's people. Some of us have probably never seen a fax. We, we need to explain this to some of the kids. It's like taking a photo of your piece of exactly. paper and then sending that photo via the telephone. Yes, and it comes out as a sheet of paper, and it lands on your desk, and it, and you were supposed to tick it and then fax it back. And the fax vote came through, and it seemed a very obvious yes, we're going to vote for this. And it landed on my desk, and I was running off somewhere, and I ticked yes, faxed it back to um, the FIA. Went off to where I was going, came back an hour later, message from Toto, can you call him back? Called him back and he said, by the way, 
Mercedes teams are voting no to whatever it was. And I was like, Oh okay. my goodness, you so said. So we were quickly, quickly on the phone to the FIA. We may have made a mistake and we changed our vote. Wow. Trumpets. What yeah. do you think the headline to this, uh, when we do our Twitter clickbait? What, what do you reckon we should write? I think it's going to be, Toto Wolf demands that Renault cow to its voting strategy. Uh, I think it should be, oh, when he said telephone, kids, he did not mean cell phone. He meant <laughs> one of those crazy things with dials and wires. Um, so, but you said, and, and I do want to follow up on this because I, I wasn't sure I heard you, that Mercedes wanted the titanium in the skid plates to keep Red Bull from running a certain rake of car? I, I, to be honest, yes, it was something to do, Summers is going to know this, obviously, for sure. It's something to do with the way that Red Bull were running the rake of their car and they were using the prior to titanium, it was it was wood, but yeah, Summers will know the detail. They were using tungsten um, in the front end of the plank in order that basically it's harder wearing. So you wanted a harder wearing material. It wouldn't wear away. It wouldn't wear away the plank. It would mean that you wouldn't then have a problem at scrutineering. And obviously the reason titanium was chosen is because it wears quicker, um, but obviously makes the nice little sparks as well. Which was something that, that Bernie mentioned in the strategy group that he liked. He said, can we get back to having sparks? So there was a specific... The, the the skid plate or, or the, the plank or whatever you want to call it had to be made of a specific material because they knew that it sparked. I've got some other great stories from strategy group. There was, a, there, was, there was a hilarious strategy group where, so it was supposed to be one person from every team sitting in the strategy group. So we're all sitting there and uh, Nicky Lauda is sitting with Toto Wolf. They're sitting side by side. So uh, Sergio Marchione comes in for this particular one on behalf of Ferrari. And he walks in and he says, why are there two people here from Mercedes? This is supposed to be one person from every team. So Toto says, well, uh, Nicky's here on behalf of the engine supplier, Mercedes. I'm on behalf of Mercedes AMG, which is not part of the rules. So Sergio Marchioni, we spent half an hour debating whether or not Nicky should be there or shouldn't be there. And then Sergio Marconi says, as my first point, I would like to bring up uh, the ability for me to bring my, oh no, sorry, Ron Dennis said he wanted to bring his PA to the next meeting because uh, he needed someone to take notes because he needed someone to keep up and take notes. So that was kind of laughed out a little bit. And yeah, okay, that's not going to happen. And he said, well, if, if Toto can bring Nikki, then I want to bring my PA to the next meeting. And then Sergio Marconi, actually physically, this went on to the minutes of the meeting said, I would like my mother-in-law to come to the next meeting. And everyone just looked at him and he said, because she makes amazing biscuits and they'll go very well with this coffee. (laughs) And that was an hour of the top people in F1 sitting around a table. I think it was in Geneva, that one. And I I was sitting next to I had Claire Williams on one side and Krishna on the other side. And we all looked at each other and were just like, what on earth is going on here? And that, kids, is why the halo. Yes, exactly. They don't... (sighs) <laughs> they have a technical director. They have a technical director's meeting, which Summers will know about. They go to that, and they are—they're clever guys. That's Paddy Lowe and the Nick Chesters and the James Allisons, and they go. And I'm sure that meeting is very sensible. And they come up with all these great ideas, and then they come to the strategy group, and we're sitting there as guys who are not technical at all, um, fairly intelligent, but not super intelligent. And we've just got a list from our technical directors of this is what we want to achieve. So we're just blindly voting against things just because that's what we've been told to do. Summers, could you do me a favor? Yes. Could you say the following word? Bananas. Bananas. There we go. That's what that is. That's no way to run a railroad. 
I mean, I mean, the although I do like the story that Bernie wanted sparks and Mercedes saw a way to hobble their competitors and off they went. And, and I'd imagine that's pretty much what all the arguing ultimately comes down to. Yep. A hundred percent. Everyone's got their own agenda and everyone is trying to stop the other person having their own agenda. Um, and, and nobody would, and then the minutes of the meeting would come out and you were sworn to secrecy. You weren't allowed to talk about the minutes of the meeting. So, but so the likes of Bob Fernley, so we used to meet sometimes at the Grand Prix, at the circuit. So I remember in Monza once coming out of a strategy group meeting and Bob Fernley coming to me and asking me what had been discussed and I'm not allowed to tell him. So Bob Fernley, who is running another team, finds out via Autosport or via, I don't know, via motorsport.com. I don't know. That's how he finds out what's been discussed in the strategy group. Well, how can they if, they, if everyone was sworn to secrecy? Surely that's that. Hmm. Paddock sources. <laughs> exactly. So, so, yeah, go on. Sure. We should ask Joe. We do, we do have a question about the famous or infamous Ferrari Vito. Is it yep. a real thing and have yep. you ever seen it wielded in the strategy group? Yes. Yes and yes. Oh, about what? Uh, I honestly can't remember the detail, but it's something that everyone voted on. I think it might have been cost cap. I think there was at one point the cost cap, we got to a point where we agreed on something and it was agreed. Um, but Ferrari were always represented by different people. Um, I, I think it was Sergio at the time, or it might have been, um, who was the guy, Marco? Uh, Mattiacci. Him. I think it might have been him. But they, they agreed to something and then they clearly went back to Marinello and were slapped on the wrist and um, the veto was used. I think it had to be used within 24 hours or 48 hours. So we all thought that it had been agreed and it was vetoed. Uh, whatever the, I can't honestly remember what the thing was because it was so insignificant. The stuff that was discussed at Strategy Group was so, this is never going to happen. Um, funnily enough, one of the things that we talked a long time about was um, standing starts after a safety car. And that was almost agreed. And then I think it got thrown back to the technical group. And they came back and they said that the racing line would have more rubber on it. So if generally a safety car comes out and it's because there's rain around, then depending on where you are on the right or the left-hand side of the grid is going to impact your ability to get a, a clean getaway, if you like. So then it was thought that there would be people, if you realize the safety car is coming out, Ooh. deliberately there would be strategists on the pit wall saying you need to let that guy past you so that we're on the right-hand side of the grid and it would cause chaos. And also there's yeah. debris and stuff off the racing line as well. Obviously there's marbles and there's debris and it's not, not as clean. So that was constantly ruled against, but I saw something in the press a few days ago where they're thinking of doing it again. Um, so I don't know how they've got around that. It's it, it, The thing is though, the start has always been such a historically chaotic phase of formula one that it's kind of special you get it at the start of the race and you get it if the race has been red flagged so although i am in favor of things to spice up the show i do like the fact that you can have strategy with tires etc sprinklers on the track maybe not but we know that rain spices up the show um but to to introduce that epic moment the grid start and put it in arbitrarily for safety cars does seem a little bit uh, a step too far where you could you could make safety car restarts more exciting fairly simply um but after hearing all but these... that's a, but that is, but that is a classic of the guys that were sitting in the strategy group thinking yes this is brilliant this is this is this gets us back to the start of the race it being thrown to the technical guys and my technical guys and they all came up and they said yeah but hang on 
if it's rained and you're on, you've got there's more rubber on one side. If there's more marbles on the other side, then it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be, you know, the person. It's not like the start of the race because it, you can never reenact that moment at the start of the race. If there's rain around, it makes it different because of the the, the you've done 50 laps and there's there's all the, the tread that's gone down over those 50 laps and there's all the marbles that are on the other side. So then from that that absolute circus that you're describing, you can't imagine these proposals for 2019 coming from that so what what is the change is it just the fact that liberty and ross braun are going about things in a different way or have they somehow freed themselves of the politics of the team or have they united the teams behind them obviously that's speculation but that that, that well, you could not have imagined this rule change just coming in four years ago and them saying do you know what next year we're just going to fundamentally do this boom let's go I mean, my honest opinion is that there's not a hell of a lot wrong with Formula One anyway. Um, and I, and I, I didn't think that from the whole time I was involved in it. Um, so they, there's, a, there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions to uh, one-off events. I mean, the engine noise thing was when I first came, when I first was sat involved in it on 2014, that was Bernie's big thing was the engine noise. Um, because he was contacted by promoters saying that the engine noise was driving fans away um, because it wasn't allowed. So... Um, th- there's not a hell of a lot wrong. There's if it's a very very obvious change that has to be made, the strategy group will work. Um, if it's a very very obvious thing that has to be changed, if it's something bananas like uh, taking a joker lap or reverse grid starting or I don't know the a draft for the drivers was another thing that cropped up at some point, like an NFL draft whereby the teams you know the team at the back gets the first shout on the driver, things like that. It's, it's never going to That's not Formula One. That's not, that's not the reason that everyone that's listening now or switching off because I'm talking too much, they're, they're, that's the reason that they, that they follow Formula One is because, it's, because it is what it is. It's a technical sport and it's, um, it's, it's historic. Matthew Carter, people don't know that you're talking too much. I, you, that means you don't listen back to the edits. All I do is say, hello, Matthew Carter, and then I trim it down to uh, Mercedes gave us a magic engine mode and then I just cut. And that is just Twitter clickbait. Uh, I think this has been fascinating seeing two giants of Mist Apex who've given us so much summers and Matthew Carter kind of going head to head and swapping tales of technical regulations. Uh, Summers, do you feel like you could just climb into the brain of Matthew Carter? Because from the outside, when you're, when you're trying to like open up the secrets of Formula One, uh, Craig Scarborough was on Facebook today complaining like it's such a technical sport how come we don't get to see that magic uh, whereas we've got two guys here like if you two could just meld minds you would be giving F1 fans exactly what they want because we're not treated with enough respect as F1 fans for wanting to know what's going on under the chassis yeah I think that's symptomatic of the sport itself though you know it is a secretive sport so you take away the secretive element of it and you do take away a layer of the actual sport itself so yeah I I, I do believe that that is a prime element of, of why we all enjoy Formula One from an engineering perspective because there are these sort of secrets that are hidden in the background um that's not to say that you know there aren't other ways of doing things, and just because you've done something for so long doesn't make it the right way. Well, and you could just look. Um, there was an article today about the other teams complaining about Ferrari. I mean, how much money and time gets spent by the teams just spying on the other teams? Technical directives, Matt. 
you know, my big book bear I can't agree. get hold of technical directives because they're not opening that they're not in an open source. Wait a minute, I'm, um, sure, I, I'm sure I can get those for you. There we go. Really? I, I do. I do get my hand on some uh, on some of them, but generally, the reason I get my hand on technical directives is because a certain team wants to tell a tale on another team and that's generally why you find these technical directives i have obviously <laughs> asked in the past that they become a public source as as has many other um people in the media you know it creates a fabric of the sport itself because those directives do shape the actual regulations as well so it is a part of the sport and i do think it should be out, out, out there in the open but I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point that you say it's a fabric of the sport. And I think the sport is 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 multi-layered as well. And that's one thing that I used to argue about a lot is that, yes, it is very, very technical. But there's also, I think there's a lack of, um, for want of a better word, a dumbed down technology or technological side of the sport where people are just, so I used to do a lot of, they used to put me on stage to talk to sponsors and to crowds of people. And you can dumb Formula One down to where people go, oh my God, so a great example that I used to use for when I was doing stuff for Renault was that the, a Formula One racing car in 2014 was more economical than a 1.5 diesel Renault Clio, okay, in terms of miles per gallon. Okay, and people were just like, Jesus, really? So, but there's things like that that people don't understand how, how advanced these cars are and, and the, the way the technology has gone. And, but you can do it in a way that, that, that does appeal to the, the masses, when you when you, and and you can do it in a way that is not super super complicated. I think I think there's a gap between the crazy complicated technical side that even I'd switch off to. I'm just like and I sat in three years of meetings with technolo- technological guys. There's a there's a there's a point where people just glaze over and they just they just they've just had enough. Um, and there's and there's a point where it's far too simple where it's just a car goes around the track and the one that crosses the line first. Da, 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 da. But there's a there's a point in the middle which is absolutely amazing. And what if you ever go to an F1 factory and you see what's going on in there, and or you go to the race weekend and you see what's going on in the garage, you see an engine change being done in two hours by 15 guys who are lying under a car working in a space that's smaller than it should be, and there's not a single crossword, there's not a single noise. They are focused. They know exactly what they're doing, and that to me is incredible. You watch a pit stop. You watch the way those guys do pit stops. I know there's been a lot talked about pit stops this year, but it's incredible. It's it's the the this is the the pinnacle of motorsport. And sometimes people dumb it down to say we should have reverse grid starts or we should have sprinklers on the track or whatever other rubbish that people come up with. And it's not. It just needs to be explained properly. And people that love the sport and enjoy the sport will get it. Um, and if you want to go super technical, you go and listen to a super technical podcast. If you want to be super slightly dumbed down, then then listen to Spanners. It's that's that's how it works. I mean, ouch, but also true. Summers, didn't you call it the Spanners effect? Yes. <laughs> I did once call it the Spanners effect. Well, because when Matt couldn't host the tech time, so like, don't worry, I'll do it. And then I was sat here for an hour going, what? What's he going on about? I've got no idea. Yeah, I mean, it but is it's amazing. But all that is amazing. All that is amazing. And all of it is true. All of it's factual. And all of, and all of it is insane. And it's and people that get it, get it and they love it. And that's why they follow this sport. They don't follow other sports. Yeah, it's true. And really uh, what I'm getting from you is that the biggest trick Formula One is missing is taking this technical insanity and putting it into terms that average consumers can relate to. Like when you go on and you talk about the efficiency of the engine and you put it in those terms, 
no one is going to miss the impressiveness of the tech that is going on. When you talk about designing and building a brand new car for every season, well, a lot of people probably don't even know that's the case. Uh, quite the, the car, the, 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 another one of my great uh, ex- examples was that the car that finishes the season, our car at Lotus, the car that finished the season was 98% different from the car that started the season. And that is literally every nut, bolt, screw, washer, you know, is different because they're constantly, you've got 500 people of those 500 people, 10 of them might be working on a tiny little area of the front corner of the edge of the radiator. And they're constantly developing and improving and saving weight or saving efficiency. And so 98% of that car that finishes the season is different from the car that starts the season. It looks very similar, but it's it's almost a completely different car. Well, I I will bring up my favorite example from uh, the only thing that I can reference, which is a Grand Prix driver. When they first put the Honda engine in, and it didn't fit. And they sort of looked at each other and they're like, oh, well, we'll just go downstairs and design and build a piece in two hours. And now the engine will work. And that you're just like, it's even more amazing when you're working <laughs> in the big bad world of engineering industry in general, and you want a very simple rig to do a very simple job. And you have to go through these commercial barriers just to get people to put together something and all the liability, etc. Uh, to think that these F1 teams can now even 3D print apart when they come up with a solution. Uh, Matthew Carter, it's been absolutely fascinating to have you on. Before the spanners being dozy, correct comment, I was going to say, send me your address and we'll wing some Mist Apex mugs uh, your way. And uh, you know you want one, so let me know where to send that. Uh, Summers, in fact, I won't ask you where people can find you, Carter, because you are still steadfastly refusing to join the Twitters. Come on, think of the interesting and fun debates we could have on Twitter with random people who criticise my pronunciation of Ricciardo, which, yes, I know, I say it differently every time. Come on, Carter, get on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, but it's all, like, locked and stuff. <laughs> At least follow me. Come on, my ego requires it. I think I do, don't I? I'll, I'll best check on this. Oh, this is this has gone like a Joe Sayward comment. This is where he... <laughs> And, and you were giving me grief about talking to Bob Varsha, honestly. You asked Bob Varsha on a date and you asked him to call you pretty. That's why I gave you grief about Bob Varsha. Summers F1, where can people find you? Where can people find your great tech work? On the Twitters. I spout nonsense on there all the time, um, which is Summers F1. is my handle. And obviously, motorsport.com, I've got a lot of work that, over there. Um, occasionally blogging on summersf1.co.uk. But actually, Trumpet spends more time um, putting work out on my site these days than I actually do. So uh, kudos to, to, to Matt for his race and qualifying re- reviews. It's so frustrating. Matt Trumpets, you do really, really good qualifying and race reviews. If only we had a website that could publish such things. I'm happy to let you have them if you'd like. No, 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 no. You found your home at Summers F1. You've made your beds. Where else can people find you? Well, of course, you can find me on the Twitters at MattPT55 and occasionally wandering around the Facebooks and the Instagrams of the world. And if you become a patron of Miss Apex, you can even find me in our community Slack group saying all sorts of completely wrong things and being corrected by Summers himself. And make sure you follow me, Spanners Ready, on Twitter. I'm the best one. You have been listening to Missed Apex Podcast. Remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Summers versus Carter. Who won?
the internet won. But you, do you know who didn't win? The audio and video editors. Because anyone listening to this now will be like, that is a great episode. They don't know. They don't know the work, the blood, the sweat, the toil that is going to have to go into making that sound good. And it will sound good. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tools tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market